0: Liftoff, we have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Tranquility Base here, vehicle has landed growth of our science and education will be enriched by new knowledge of our universe and environment. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained. In the final scene of Shakespeare's play, merchant of Venice Lorenzo and his beloved Jessica find themselves alone at night in the garden of Belmont Lorenzo looking up at the starry sky with its bright shining moon turns to his lady and says how sweet the moonlight sleeps upon this bank here will we sit and let the sounds of music creep in our ears soft stillness and the night become the touches of sweet harmony sit Jessica look how the floor of heaven is thick inlaid with patterns of bright gold there's not the smallest orb which thou beholdest but in his motion like an angel sings still quiring to the young eyed cherubins such harmony is in immortal souls but whilst this muddy vesture of decay doth grossly close it in, we cannot hear it. In this play written more than 2,000 years after Pythagoras, Shakespeare alludes to three important elements in the Pythagorean doctrine of the harmony of the spheres. First, the Pythagorean belief that each of the heavenly spheres sounds a note that contributes to a musical harmony. Second, that just as there is harmony in the cosmos, so there is harmony in the human soul. And third, that while the soul is encased in a mortal frame, it cannot perceive this heavenly harmony. In the words of Lorenzo, we cannot hear it. To find out more about the originator of these remarkable ideas, we must travel back in time to the sixth century BC in search of the historical Pythagoras. This is no easy task. Virtually everything that has been said about Pythagoras is hotly contested. While he is a household name, as far as mathematics is concerned, when it comes to the question of facts about his life, his philosophical activities and whether he actually wrote anything, this philosopher, more than any other, is shrouded in controversy and mystery. If you venture into writings on the subject, you will come across two dominant approaches. On the one hand, there are the rationalists. These writers maintain that the real Pythagoras is virtually unknowable, given the complexity of the ancient sources and they ridicule many of the stories about Pythagoras as mere legends. On the other hand, there are the mystics, those who are not so interested in arguing about the veracity of the sources as they are in embracing Pythagorean ideas and tracing the indisputable influence of those ideas through time. In this talk, I'm going to try and strike a middle path. I will use the ancient sources carefully and judiciously on the one hand, but on the the other hand, I want to be fair to Pythagoras, who was, I believe, a truly remarkable and unconventional thinker. So I've structured this talk in three parts. First, I will introduce Pythagoras as a philosopher and the basic facts that we know about his life. Next, I will talk about what it is that made Pythagoras unconventional, even in his own time. And finally, I will talk about the music of the spheres and the influence of that idea through the centuries. Pythagoras was, first and foremost, a philosopher. The term comes from philos, meaning love, and sophia, meaning the wisdom, And that concept of wisdom denotes supreme skill in some domain. And the domain of ancient philosophy was not narrowly specified because philosophers in the ancient Greek world were inquirers into all things. And the scope of their inquiries was truly vast. Their studies encompassed what we today would call physics, chemistry, botany, geology, meteorology, Astronomy, psychology, theology, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Greek philosophers studied all of these subjects and more. They were polymaths, the the true multidisciplinarians. A Greek philosopher visiting a modern university would, I think, be rather bemused at the way that we have divided subjects into neat disciplines and they would be even more puzzled by our tendencies to specialise within a limited field. Even more importantly, 6th century philosophers made no distinction between rationalism and mysticism. The study of science and religion were at that time closely aligned and interdependent. This is a hard thing for us to imagine, conditioned as we are by our modern scientific age. So to enter the world of 6th century philosophy, we have to put aside our modern scientific conditioning, as it were, and prepare ourselves for many ideas that will seem irrational, esoteric and mystical. To begin with, Pythagoras was almost certainly not his real name. But this should not alarm us, because assigning new names to ancient Greek philosophers was common in the ancient Greek world to allude to their divine attributes or their particular abilities. So Aristocles was renamed Plato, apparently to reflect his strong build or his broad forehead, and Theotimus was renamed Theophrastus by Aristotle because Aristotle thought him a godlike speaker. And according to Aristippus, Pythagoras was so named because he spoke the truth no less than the Pythian Apollo, So the name Pythagoras is actually a composite of two words, Pythia, which is an epithet or a a word associated with the Delphic oracle, and the verb agorheouen, a Greek verb meaning to speak. So whatever his birth name might have been, Pythagoras was born around around 570 BC. He came from a wealthy family. He was the son of Menasakos, a gem engraver. Pythagoras spent his early years on the small but beautiful island of Samos, just off the coast of modern Turkey. As a young man, he is said to have travelled widely in the Near East, in particular to Babylonia, Phoenicia and Egypt. And the Egyptians, of course, had a sophisticated understanding of mathematics, geometry, religion, and astronomy. And the ancient sources tell us that when Pythagoras visited Egypt, he learnt the Egyptian language, he entered the Egyptian sanctuaries, and he was told their secret knowledge of the gods. It is quite likely, then, that the Pythagorean theorem that we commonly attribute to Pythagoras was not actually discovered by Pythagoras himself, but that he learnt it from the Egyptians and that they, in turn, learnt it from the Babylonians. And Pythagoras was notable only for proving to the Greek world that the theorem worked. So you can tell that to your high school mathematics teacher when you see them next. In 535 BC, at about 40 years of age, Pythagoras left Samos and he moved to the city of Croton, a Greek colony in southern Italy, where he started lecturing to the public, and he attracted a large number of followers. In 510 BC, he moved to Metaponto, where he lived until his death around 490 BC. If you're only interested in the barest facts about Pythagoras's life, that is basically all that we know. But, if you would like to delve a little deeper into the ancient sources, things are about to get a lot more interesting. We have three accounts of Pythagoras's life in three very different ancient sources: Diogenes Laërtius, Porphyry of Tyre, and Iamblichus of Chalcis. None of these are contemporary accounts. They were all written around 800 years after Pythagoras's death. Diogenes Laotius's account is probably the most impartial, but it is still far from being factual and straightforward. Like all of his biographies of ancient philosophers, it is filled with anecdotes, with stories, with wonders, with sayings and extraneous material. The second and the third accounts are products of Neoplatonists, late antique philosophers who had a vested interest in presenting Pythagoras in an idealized and positive light. Apart from these accounts, we have discussions of Pythagorean ideas in the writings of Plato and Aristotle and a whole host of other sources in which Pythagorean ideas get reworked and elaborated upon. Taken as a whole, the ancient sources reveal that even in his own day, Pythagoras was a famous and notable thinker but he was not famous for the things we might expect. Pythagoras was considered remarkable because his religious beliefs were altogether different from those of his time, and because his prescribed way of life reflected a different set of ethical and moral principles. As with all unconventional thinkers throughout history, their ideas often seem peculiar and outlandish in their own time. And as a result, these thinkers often attract ridicule and suspicion and legendary stories. But I would argue that it is the very unconventionality of these thinkers that makes them great. Let us consider, first of all, Pythagoras' beliefs about the soul. When Pythagoras arrived in Croton in southern Italy, he started lecturing to the people about the concept of immortality. His audience was an unlikely one. They were made up of wealthy landowners who had concubines and numerous slaves and whose wives wore expensive clothes and gold jewelry. They lacked nothing in material terms. But what Pythagoras offered this well-off community was altogether otherworldly, the hope of divine perfection Through the study of mathematics, physics, nature and the cosmos and contemplation of the universal order, Pythagoras promised that his followers would be purified and that their souls would be released from their bodies after death and be reincarnated. Pythagoras himself believed that he had been reincarnated many times and he claimed to retain a memory of all of his past lives. In the context of the widely held beliefs of the time, Pythagoras' belief in reincarnation was radical, to say the least. Most Greeks at this time thought of death and the soul as it is depicted in the epic poems of Homer. They thought of the soul as a dark, bird-like, twittering shadow that leaves the body of the deceased and goes to the underworld where it resides in this bleak and miserable existence with all the other souls of the dead. An existence so bleak that Achilles famously said, he would rather be the lowest mortal on earth than king of the dead. So to Greeks of this time, Pythagoras' teachings that the soul was immortal and that it would be reincarnated and that it might have a pleasant existence after death must have seemed strikingly innovative, and it must have held some appeal. But Pythagoras' ideas were so innovative that they inevitably attracted ridicule. There is a famous fragment from Xenophanes, a contemporary of Pythagoras. He pokes fun at the Pythagorean concept of reincarnation. According to Xenophanes, Pythagoras once saw a puppy being beaten, and hearing its yelps, He took pity on it and ordered the beating to stop, saying that he recognized the soul of the man that had been reborn into the animal. Xenophanes clearly found the idea of the transmigration of the soul preposterous. But, as we know, it was not considered preposterous in philosophies and religions beyond the Greek world. Whatever we might think of these ideas today, they clearly had a deep impact on the people of Croton. Porphyry tells us fame grew great around Pythagoras, and he won over many followers from this city, not only men, but also women, and also many from the neighboring non-Greek territory, both kings and rulers. So here is another mark of Pythagoras's unconventionality, the fact that the followers of Pythagoras included both men and women. Pythagoras was in fact the first Greek philosopher to include women among his followers. In Iamblichus' list of 218 male followers, there are 17 women listed as the most famous Pythagorean women. To Greeks of the time, the inclusion of female followers would have seemed very strange indeed. So what about the Pythagorean way of life? How would it have been viewed by the people of Pythagoras's day? Again, we see Pythagoras swimming against the tide of conventionality. He actively discouraged materialism and extravagant displays of wealth. All property, he declared, was to be held communally. According to the ancient Greek maxim, koinata philon einai. Whether male or female, followers of Pythagoras dressed modestly, in simple linen clothing. And for women in particular, the wearing of jewellery and cosmetics was forbidden. Followers of Pythagoras were allowed to marry. Pythagoras himself is said to have been married to a woman named Theano. But here was another crucial difference. Sexual monogamy was demanded from both husbands and wives. In a culture in which married men had courtesans and young male lovers, and this practice was both widespread and accepted throughout the Greek world, monogamy was a radical departure from the norm. Pythagoras also advocated respect for one's parents and the recognition of children as especially dear to the gods. The daily routine for followers of Pythagoras included memory exercises, which were practiced upon waking, and a morning walk in order to compose the soul. There were strict dietary restrictions. The Pythagoreans ate barley and wheat, honey, raw and cooked vegetables, fruits, and especially figs and olives. The evidence regarding the consumption of meat is contradictory. Either they were strictly vegetarian, or they were forbidden from eating only certain parts or types of animals, or they ate sacrificial meat only. If they were strictly vegetarian, this certainly marked them out as different from the majority of Greeks. But probably the most famous prohibition was the prohibition on eating beans, which was first attested by Aristotle and mentioned in Diogenes Laërtius. The reasons for this prohibition in a peaceful and contemplative community are, to my mind, obvious enough but they are rarely discussed in scholarly literature on the subject. There was a special emphasis among the Pythagoreans on the communal enjoyment of harmonious music. Followers would sit in a circle with a lyre player in their midst and they would sing religious hymns known as paeans through which the community would become joyful and harmonious. Music was also used as a form of therapy with Pythagoras using songs to heal diseases of the body as well as to heal grief and mitigate anger and combat lust. Pythagoras also apparently made use of certain therapeutic dances to promote the mobility and health of the body. Whether there was a strict code of silence observed by students at the school is a vexed question. Some of the sources indicate that new pupils to the school had to observe a five-year probationary period during which they were allowed to attend lectures but could not speak. Personally, I think this is a policy we should consider for our undergraduate students. (laughs) Only, only after pupils have passed five years in silence were they finally designated students and allowed to ask questions of Pythagoras directly. But there are others who suggested that the five-year silence was not a literal requirement. It's simply a reference to the secrecy that surrounded Pythagorean teachings. Whatever the truth might be, it is again the unconventionality of the Pythagorean school that marks it out. Was it a school? Was it a cult? Was it simply a community? Was it akin in some ways to a modern health retreat? However you choose to view the Pythagorean way of life, Pythagoras was famous for establishing a very different type of community, which still had adherence in the fourth century, over 100 years after his death. This brings me to the stories of Pythagoras as a wonder worker. Some of our earliest traditions about Pythagoras indicate that he had superhuman attributes and abilities. That special care is required is required with these stories Aristotle tells us that Pythagoras had a golden thigh Apparently, it was briefly glimpsed just once at an Olympic festival when Pythagoras was getting up from his seat There is a story that Pythagoras was capable of by location That he was seen on the same day at the same time in both Metaponto and Croton although those two places are many miles apart and separated by land and sea, and it takes many days to travel between them. There is a story that he killed a deadly snake by biting it. There is a story that as he was crossing a river near Metaponto with several friends, the river spoke to him loudly enough for all to hear, and it said, Greetings, Pythagoras. There are reports that the people of Croton regarded Pythagoras as an incarnation of Apollo because a priest once visited and recognized him as such. And there is a story that Pythagoras once spoke to a bear that had been terrorizing a community, and he made the bear swear never to harm a living creature again, and of course the bear complied. To my mind, these are precisely the sorts of stories that might attach themselves to a mystic or a holy man. And Pythagoras himself may have sought to cultivate a reputation for wondrous abilities. He was, after all, seeking to disseminate his ideas and to attract followers. But they are also the sorts of stories that one might attribute to a person if you're seeking to discredit that person's ideas or to misrepresent or exaggerate that person's unconventionality. Here I think it's worth remembering how... Philosophers were portrayed in 5th century Greek comedy and in popular stories, and it's not a a, a very pleasant portrayal. (laughs) They're portrayed as babbling about numbers, falling down wells, walking around with their heads in the clouds, conducting absurd experiments, and hanging from baskets in mid-air to measure the heavens. Other stories about Pythagoras are that he put an end to an epidemic of the plague, that he could stop the wind and the storms, that he could calm the waves and that he met with some fishermen once drawing in a catch and he exactly predicted the number of fish that they had caught. It's no mistake that some of these stories are reminiscent of passages from the New Testament. These later Neoplatonic sources had a vested interest in presenting Pythagoras as a proto-Christ or a rival to Christ and the stories of Pythagoras as a pagan alternative to the Gospels. Countless other still more marvelous and divine things were said about this man in the same way says Porphyry as he concludes his account of the miraculous stories of Pythagoras What about the question of works did Pythagoras actually write anything? The official view is that Pythagoras did not write any books mainly because no source contemporaneous with Pythagoras, or in the first 200 years after his death, quotes from a book by Pythagoras. But let me just contrast this with a quote directly from the ancient sources. And this is from Diogenes Laertius's Life of Pythagoras. He says, There are some who insist, absurdly enough, that Pythagoras left no writings whatever. At all events, Heraclitus almost shouts in our ear that Pythagoras, the son of Nasarchus, practiced inquiry beyond all other men and in the selection of his writings made himself a wisdom of his own. Diogenes Laotius goes on to insist that Pythagoras wrote at least three works on nature, on education, and on statesmanship. And he then goes on to mention six other works attributed to Pythagoras, And it is interesting, too, that he records that Theano, Pythagoras' wife, wrote a few things. In a time when female philosophers were unheard of, and philosophical works written by women were hardly the norm, this strikes me as a very significant statement. So I have to say that personally I'm inclined to follow the argument that is raised by Sarah Pomeroy in a wonderful little book called The Pythagorean Women. And she says that, first of all, there's no doubt that for the most part, Pythagoras' ideas were transmitted orally. But we also know that Pythagoras was literate and that he came from a literate family. In particular, his mother, his wife, and his daughter were all literate. So in all likelihood, I Pythagoras probably wrote things, but what he wrote were memoranda, that is hypomnemata in the Greek, not books as such. So, Pythagorean teachings were probably recorded as notes, not as formal, polished treatises for dissemination or publication. So, when we speak about a Pythagorean work, I would argue that we need to use the term work in a broad sense. That is, a philosophical output that was not necessarily recorded in a traditional form as a book. This brings me to one of the most interesting and profound Ideas from the Pythagoreans, the theory of the music of the spheres. The first remarkable element of this idea is, of course, the sphere itself. The Pythagoreans believed that the sphere is the most perfect geometrical form, and Diogenes Laertius credits Pythagoras with the discovery that the moon is a sphere, although others say it was Parmenides who made this discovery. Pythagoras is said to have deduced this from looking at the shape of the line that divides the side of the moon that is in the dark from the side that is in the light. Because the line is curved, he reasoned that the moon must be a sphere and that the earth must be a sphere as well. This in itself was remarkable, given that the dominant view in ancient Greece at the time was that the earth is flat and shaped like a round shield with an ocean flowing around the outer rim, and Greece, and particularly Delphi, right at the very center of that flat earth. And it's even more remarkable when we think that in Greek myth, the moon was regarded as a female deity, known as Selene, as she traveled across the sky at night in a wagon, just as Helios, the god of the sun, traveled across the sky in a chariot in the daytime. It's also remarkable that Pythagoras is said by Pliny to have measured the distance from the earth to the moon and he gives a precise measurement 126,000 stades and then from the moon to the Sun he measured it as twice as much and from the Sun to the 12 signs of the zodiac three times as much These measurements are not correct, but Pythagoras was clearly applying his knowledge of mathematics to the study of the cosmos and he was trying to study the distances between planets and looking at the the regularity of the intervals between the planets. Next, there was this entirely different view of the planetary system and Earth's place within it. In Greek mythology generally, Greeks thought of the universe as a sort of three-story house. The gods live on the top level, the, the level of the sky, Uranos. The humans live in the middle story of the house that's the earth story of the house Gaia and Tartarus and the realm of the dead at the lower level This again was a profoundly geocentric and anthropocentric view of the cosmos With humans in the middle the gods above and the dead below the Pythagorean Model of the universe was radically different and it was fully developed Um, by the Pythagorean known as Philolaeus in the second half of the 5th century. According to this model, Earth is no longer in the middle of the world. Its place is taken by a central fire, which is not to be confused with the sun. Around this fire or hearth revolve 10 heavenly bodies. The first is Antichthon, known as the counter-Earth, which we cannot see because we are always turned away from it. Next, there is the Earth, then the Moon, then the planets, the visible planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, and the fixed stars. Remarkably, the Renaissance mathematician and astronomer Copernicus said that this Pythagorean model was one of the influences that led him to abandon the geocentric model of the universe and to conclude that the planets revolve around the sun. So having reasoned that the planets and the other heavenly bodies, including the moon and the earth, are spherical, and that they are arranged in some type of orderly and harmonious system, Pythagoras then developed the theory that each heavenly body in the universe emits its own distinct sound as it travels through space. He reasoned that because spheres are large, moving, Objects and moving objects generally make a sound as they travel through air or through some other substance Heavenly bodies must make a sound as they travel through space So each of the seven planets was thought to emit a note a single note And the pitch of the note was determined by the velocity of the bodies and in turn by their distances so Saturn makes the note B Jupiter C Mars, D, the Sun, E, Mercury, F, Venus, G, and the Moon, A, as well as a sound emitted by the sphere of fixed stars and the counter-Earth. And that makes a total of nine heavenly bodies. And each of these heavenly bodies was then equated to one of the nine muses, that is, the Greek nymphs responsible for the arts and the eternal and everlasting being, Pythagoras called Nemosyne, that is, the mother of the Muses. So that together makes a total of 10 heavenly bodies, which according to Pythagoras was the perfect number, being the sum of the first four numbers, one, two, three, and 4. The intervals between the heavenly bodies were said to replicate the intervals between notes on the musical scale and taken all together, these sounds combine to create a celestial and wondrous music. We can see immediately that this theory is derived from a remarkable combination of ideas. As the early Christian author Hippolytus writes, Pythagoras mixed astronomy, geometry, music and arithmetic. And the story of how he came to stumble upon this theory is again shrouded in legend, The story, according to Iamblichus, is that as he was walking past a forge one day, he heard hammers beating iron on an anvil and making sounds in harmony with one another, except for one combination. And he recognized in these sounds the octave and the fifth and the fourth, and that the interval between the fourth and the fifth was dissonant. He rushed into the forge, he grabbed the hammers And by means of several tests, he found that the differences in sound were produced by the different sizes of the hammers. When he got home, he then suspended four strings and attached weights to each of them. And he found that the string that was stretched by the greatest weight and the string that was stretched by the smallest weight produced sounds that were an octave apart. And so his exploration of musical intervals began. There are, of course, problems (laughs) with this story. (laughs) The problem being that the pitch of a sound produced by a hammer is not directly proportional to its weight. But it is generally agreed that Pythagoras discovered that music has a mathematical foundation and in particular that the central musical concords, that is the octave and the fifth and the fourth, do correspond to ratios of numbers. And Pythagoras then went on to apply this theory to experiments with real musical instruments, the lyre and so on. So combining his discoveries about numerical relationships in music with cosmology, Pythagoras developed the idea that musical harmony is a fundamental feature of the cosmos. And so the idea of the harmony of the spheres was born a type of cosmic music which Pythagoras himself claimed to be able to hear. According to Porphyry, Pythagoras himself used to listen to the harmonious music of the universe since he perceived the overall harmony of the spheres and of the stars that move within them, which we do not hear because our nature is limited. And Pythagoras sought to transmit the beneficial effect of this cosmic music to his pupils by imitating it with instruments and his own voice. I don't think it's entirely clear whether he was actually claiming to hear the sounds of the planets as they revolve in space, or whether what he's saying is that he's able to replicate the harmony that he saw in the universe through mathematical ratios and replicate that in earthly music. Whatever the case may be, this idea was certainly picked up and developed by later philosophers and writers. So Plato adopted the idea, and he is responsible for transmitting it into the mainstream of Greek thought and philosophy. In a dialogue called the Timaeus, Plato describes the human soul as capable of harmony and as attuned to the harmony that exists in the universe. So we get this lovely macrocosm, microcosm idea, the idea that The human soul is a miniature version of the broader cosmic harmony that exists around us. The idea is even more fully developed in Plato's Republic, in the famous myth of Ur. There, Plato describes eight heavenly spheres that whirl concentrically around the spindle of necessity. On each sphere, a siren sits, So we've moved from the Muses to the sirens. And each siren sings a single note, and together these eight notes combine to create a wonderful harmony. Singing along with this music are the three daughters of necessity, who you can see at the bottom here. They're known as the Fates. They're dressed in white robes, they have wreaths upon their heads, and they sing along to the sirens' music. La sings of the things that were Clotho sings of the things that are and Atropos sings of the things that are yet to be. The idea next appears in Pliny's Natural History. And Pliny's, this is a lovely quote, because he really wonders about the actual sound. What is the sound really like? And he says, whether the sound of such a vast mass whirling in its ceaseless rotation is so loud As to exceed the capacity of the ear, I cannot easily say. No more than whether there is at the same time a tinkling of the stars as they turn around with it, revolving in their orbits, nor whether it makes sweet music of incredible beauty. To us who live within it, the world glides silently, day and night. The idea next appears in the writings of the great orator Cicero, In Cicero's dream of Scipio, the universe is described as linked together in nine circles or spheres. The outermost sphere embraces and holds together all the others. As the planets revolve within their spheres, they produce a note that depends on the speed of their revolution. The celestial zone that is full of stars revolves quickly and is said to produce a sharp, high note while the moon is said to produce the lowest tone of all. The combined effect of these sounds is said to be captivating and beautiful. Cicero suggests that earthly music can open a pathway back to this celestial harmony. He says, learned men, by imitating this sound with stringed instruments and melodies, have opened for themselves the way back to this place. But the problem The majority of us is that according to Cicero the ears of men are overpowered by the volume of the sound and have grown deaf. So notice that for Cicero it's not that we're incapable of hearing the sound rather that it is that we've become so accustomed to hearing the sound that we no longer pay attention to it. So we come full circle in this talk back to the ideas so beautifully expressed in Shakespeare's play. That while we are capable of resonating with an inner harmony that reflects a larger cosmic harmony, we somehow fall short in this capability. There is much more that could be said about the influence of this idea in the medieval period, in the Renaissance period, and in the writings of Johannes Kepler, who tried very hard to prove um, that this theorem was in fact workable. But suffice it to say that the Pythagorean theory of the music of the spheres has inspired poets and writers and artists and musicians and mystics and philosophers for many centuries since, and it continues to do so. The question for us is where does this leave uh, Pythagoras and his ideas today? What can they mean, what do they mean for us? Personally, I wonder what Pythagoras would have made of the moon landing. That was a venture that started as an extraordinary idea, but when it was realized, it confirmed absolutely and definitively the Pythagorean theory that the moon and the Earth are spherical. What would Pythagoras think if he knew that his name had been given to a prominent impact crater on the northwestern rim of the moon? What would Pythagoras make of the audio files of radio transmission of radio emissions from saturn that were detected by the cassini spacecraft in 2002 nasa has released these audio files and you can listen to them online and the sounds of these radio emissions from saturn are really eerie and otherworldly but they're not perhaps the sort of harmonious music that pythagoras might have hoped for what would pythagoras make of our efforts to transmit music into space in the hope of being heard by other life forms such as nasa's launching of a special phonograph album that was sent out on the voyager 1 and 2 spacecraft in 1977 and that album contained recordings of the sounds of earth and folk music and compositions of bach for example whatever you might think of the sixth century philosopher pythagoras and his highly unconventional ideas there are i think some aspects of his outlook that still hold great meaning and value today are we not still turning to the heavens to answer the deepest and most fundamental questions about where we came from and why we are here are we not still desirous of harmony in ourselves in our relationships with others and in our relationship with the world and the cosmos? Do we not still turn to music to soothe our souls, to quieten our minds, to relieve our anxieties and lift our spirits? Do we not still, like Lorenzo in Shakespeare's play, stare up at the heavens on a moonlit night in wonder and awe at the beauty of it all? And are we any more certain in this day and age of where precisely we go once we divest ourselves of this muddy vesture of decay? Does the notion that part of us might live on eternally not hold some appeal? It is the unconventional thinkers of history, ladies and gentlemen, who are least understood in their own time, but who make the biggest impact in terms of human thought and achievement. Today, I think more than ever, we need unconventional thinkers, we need radical thinkers, we need big thinkers, and we need the benefit and the insights of the truly multidisciplinary approach that Pythagoras embodied.